Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, global health analyst and author Anoushe Hussein on women's health and national security. So, yes, you have the ethical argument. You also have a very hardcore realist argument that yeah. helping women's security helps national security. Yeah. And it's also like it's not just women's health. You know, it's your country's health. It's your society's health, your, your, or your national health. The people who decide these things, I mean, it really does come down to a lot of really old white men who have no idea. Or maybe they don't care. We went to school together every morning in a bulletproof car. And one day, the embassy had gotten news that my dad's political party was going to bomb the ambassador's residence. The American ambassador was like, I just know this intelligence is not right because his daughter is staying at my house. Anusha, welcome to Chatter. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I, I am looking forward to this and I have the same enthusiasm, even though we're going to be talking about some pretty miserable stuff. Yes, but you know what? That's kind of the story of my life. I usually always talk about pretty miserable things. You must be fun at parties. You know, I was just going to say that. I think I'm really fun, but my husband has told me a few times, like, if we can't, let's not bring up genocide at the at this dinner party. Don't talk about work. I'm like, really? Why not? <laughs> well, there are important things here to talk about, and, and talking about them with energy is good, mm-hmm. but... I don't want to give anyone the wrong impression that yes. if I'm enthusiastic about, you know, uh, maternal death rates yeah. <laughs> or or some of the issues that we'll get into that yeah. it's uh, minimizing them or trivializing them. Yes. Well, we definitely have to be sensitive. But also what's really important before we start this conversation is it, it may be doom and gloom issues, but the book is not doom and gloom. I mean, we're not talking about solving cancer or AIDS. So it's actually a very hopeful um, positive, positive book, even though the issues may not be. Yeah, and that's that's important as we get through this. I, I do want to focus on the doom and gloom, yes, yeah. because, you know, national security, we're all about doom and gloom, but also <laughs> about that empowerment, about that, yes. the positivity and the, the fact that there is an opportunity for change. There's an opportunity yeah. for progress here. Yes, so I yes. definitely want to get at that. Uh, let's go way back. Okay. Let's go. Let's go way back to baby Anoushe. So <laughs> there you are. The neglected fourth child. Ooh. Is that how it was? <laughs> yeah, well, I was the youngest. People always were telling me to stop talking or to be quiet or st- stop being so animated. But yeah, I was the fourth, uh, the youngest of four sisters. Wow. And even now, this is a side note, but I can get ready really fast, like in 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> because my parents would just leave me. My family would just leave me if I wasn't ready. That is good training. I know. <laughs> I mean, it's I horrible training. I haven't met training. any other women like that. I know that's a stereotype, but it's true. I get ready so fast. So you, you were born and grew up in Bangladesh, correct? Yes, yes. Uh, youngest of, of four daughters. Wow. But you, you weren't a typical Bangladeshi family, right? Your, no. Your, your, your father, what happened when you were a teenager? Um... What happened when I was a teenager? Well, so much stuff. Uh, my grandfather, my father's father, was one of the founding fathers of Bangladesh, and my family was very involved with um, the liberation of the country and Bangladesh's independence. Uh, we own the largest and oldest national newspaper. But only recently in my life, I don't know why I'm looking at the microphone and not you, David. Probably because I'm scared of you. <laughs> Scared of me? You think this is a, is this an interrogation? <laughs> if I fail this interview, please don't deport me, David. I have no such power. I don't have the power to deport someone from the Goat Rodeo studio. 
much less from the United States of America. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, by the way. There's no reason to deport me. Um, but yes, it's only recently. It's so funny because it was a very high profile political family. But I, in Bangladesh, whatever we did, no matter what, was always like, oh, she got into this great school because of her dad, or she got this job because of her dad. So when I came to America, I really loved how no one gave a crap about who my dad was, mostly because people didn't know. And I really liked that. And just recently, I think in the past year or two, and really with this book, I started really talking about, which happens when you write a book, right? Mm -hmm. Where you came from in your family. And I've kind of been like, yeah, this is who I am. And it is kind of how it is. And my dad was just here last week and, and he told me that when he was growing up, he always had to hear that his kind of successes came from his father, which is something I didn't know because they kind of, their political careers really like merged. Um, and I was like, what? I can't believe you had to put up with that. And he's like, I can't believe you're so sensitive about it. <laughs> Well, since you brought up your, your grandfather and your father, we're going to go further back than baby Anushe then, because I have to ask, what, what stories were you told when you were young, or what did you pick up from others in the family about you know, 1971 yes. and about the, the issues that gave rise to Bangladesh as an independent country? All of that was my entire life, every day. I mean, really, even kind of now. Um, growing up, the stories about 1971, and those were the stories that really raised, I feel like, my generation. I mean, that's just what we grew up with it was every day. I, I don't remember not thinking about it. It's it's funny now because there is a thing about the Bangladesh-Pakistan independence war that's similar with the Armenian and Turkish hmm. conflict where the Turks really just don't recognize the Armenian genocide. And right. they're really kind of like, I have a lot of Turkish friends and much respect to the Turks. I know they hate it when we bring this up. Uh, but there is a parallel because I feel like Pakistanis do that too, where they're not educated about it or they're not, they really believe it's some conspiracy uh, with India or the larger international community. And that always gets at me because it, it's the story of, of my family and family members who were killed or gone missing or, I mean, I mean, I, I wrote about this in a Forbes piece a long time ago, but the more I started writing in the States, the more people started opening up to me in Bangladesh and kind of take me to corners, tell me some story. And I had an uncle come up to me one time when I was really trying to dig into um, the rapes that happened during the war because the Bangladesh-Pakistan Liberation War was the first time that rape was used as an official strategy, even though obviously mm. it's been being used since like the Roman Empire. Uh, it was an official strategy of the war because they knew that these Muslim women, if they were like gang raped and, you know, uh, put in the rape camps, that, you know, they'd be disowned by their families. And so it was a really effective strategy to kind of unravel the fabric of society. And uh, what the father of the nation, Bangabundu, did uh, was after the war, he made these women, uh, gave them the status of, uh, what's it called? Not war heroes, liberation mm. war heroes, okay. um, to kind of reintegrate them. And obviously that was an amazing gesture that didn't work out but um, so much. But a lot of these women were still alive and now they're dying. So I was really trying to collect as many stories as I could. Um, and uh, I just had this uncle come up to me out of nowhere telling me about this, one of the most affluent areas to live in Bangladesh is Gulshan, where all the foreigners live. And just how Gulshan Lake and under that bridge was just covered with piles and piles of women's bodies. Mm. All these rape bodies that they had dumped because when, when, when India got involved in the war and it was pretty clear that we were going to win the war, 
Um, it was a lot. It was kind of similar to the American Vietnam War in the sense that America had all the weaponry, but the people on the ground kind of had the determination and, and, and the power, even if we didn't have all the arms. But when that was uh, happening, a lot of the war camps, they had they had let these women out. So, you know, they were kind of releasing the women in in uh, the in the camps. And uh, I mean, a lot of these you can't really even say women, but it was like, you know, 12 year old girls, 13 year old girls. Um, but anyhow, I don't know why I went down the war camp. Uh, rape camp path. Because I, you know, I asked about that's the experience. That's me at a dinner party. And that's what, <laughs> but that's the experience you heard. That's that's oh, yeah, the journey so that these people were taking these you things. on. Yeah, and people going missing. And then we had a gun in our house when I was a kid. And, you know, it's common in America maybe, but in Bangladesh it really wasn't, but it was an antique gun. And um, it, it didn't work or anything, but we all knew where it was in my dad's closet. My mom said that when some of the soldiers had come because they would just come and like stay at your house, uh, had come to stay. She took one of the guns because at one point my dad got picked up. And so she didn't, she could speak a little Urdu and she ran up to the military men because, they, you know, obviously they were going to pick up my dad. They were worried he was informing the CIA, which he was. <laughs> they wanted to know, he, they knew he was the son of a powerful man. He was organizing a lot on the ground. So my mom said she just took one of their guns because she was scared in, in case someone came back and she spoke a little Urdu. And my eldest sister was just born. She was just a few months old. So my mom just said, please, you have to, you have to bring my husband back because oh, hey, we just got married and all this stuff. And my mom said, because that's what happened back in those days. They came, they picked up your husband and, and that was it. You never saw them again. And the, aside from the war being, uh, I mean, rape being an official strategy of the war, it was also strategically identifying and killing the intellectuals. I mean, a lot of Bangladeshis will tell you this, but the, uh, when Pakistan, East, West Pakistan knew they were going to lose the war, they didn't want us to be able to rise again. And, you know, Bangladesh is kind of like, we're kind of like, um, you know, they call it like the, the French of the subcontinent. We're like the land of all the poets. And so we had a lot of writers like Tagore and uh, Ramahan Roy, like all the, prior to the, uh, the independence movement, there was a language movement in 1952. We got it. Uh, we got our independence in 71, but that's something my grandfather was very involved with because the issue was that after the British um, left India, right, everybody wanted to be independent. Mm -hmm. And they created East and West Pakistan based on Muslim majorities on both sides. So we have India in the middle, and then we've got these Muslim majorities on both sides. So they decided to make one Islamic country separated by India, that's East and West Pakistan, united by religion. Because by the time the British left, like they had to partition India. They had exploited kind of the communal tensions, mm -hmm. which were actually happy prior to the British rule. Uh, everybody was kind of getting along. Um, had explo exploited to the point that we had to become our, our, our own country. But the big thing was that Bengalis, I mean, Bangladesh means land of, of Bangla. I mean, we were just like, we can't be like one country with these people. We don't speak the same language. We're completely different culturally. And no one really wanted to listen to that. So, you know, one man was like, we need to have like our own, our own newspaper. And it's still in, in it's still running today. And I actually have a column with them. So, yeah, that was my grandfather. And that, that of course, was all long before you were born. Yeah. But it informed your experience because everything you're, you're, uh, you're, you're growing up and suddenly your dad what runs for the Bangladeshi parliament. Yeah, it and wasn't sudden. It was it was like always. Yeah. Like I was born in 80 and my dad's I mean, he was 
I mean, now he's a member of parliament, but he was minister of energy. Then he was minister of communications twice. Like 1996 was really like his 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 big year. He did something he, unusual with his uh, with the election and uh, yeah. the seats. What did he yeah. do when? And, and you have to explain how it is, unlike in some countries, how how someone can run for two different seats and yeah. win them both. Well, it's it's very funny in Bangladesh. Uh, you can actually run for up to five seats, especially at that time, and I think now it's four. But uh, my father has a very special relationship um, with the prime minister because her father, the, found, the father of the nation, and my grandfather were very close. And so he has you know, helped her build coalitions in the past to bring her party in. And 1996 was a was a big one without joining her party. So he got to keep his, he, you know, he got to have his cake and I guess eat it too. But he formed a majority with her, didn't join her party, and then she gave him a cabinet. She wanted him to finish um, the, the Bongo Bundu Bridge, the Jomuna Bridge, which my dad finished in 1997. Uh, is the large is the twelfth largest bridge in the world, and it connects North and South Bangladesh. But he had started it in a previous under a previous administration, and the government fell, and he was arrested, and everything. And when they brought him back in '96, um, Hasina wanted him to finish the bridge, and and uh, and he did. I thought it was fun that you could have a system where. Maybe he didn't run for five seats because he was an underachiever, but he, but he ran and won in two seats. Yeah. What did he do with the second seat? He nominated my mother for it. I, I did not know that that was something one could do. I didn't either, but I remember this all happening in 96. He nominated my mom for it, and she had to run for it. She didn't just grab it. She had, like, two other men that were running against her from the opposition party, and they were like, this woman's children uh, go to the American school in the Capitol. Yep. <laughs> Basically, they're whores, you know, whatever. Um, so you, they really attacked her for for her kids being in the American school, which is funny because my dad went to Georgetown and he's such an advocate mm. and uh, he's just, he just loves America, the American education system, which I'm so grateful for, too. So it was funny that that's what they attacked us on, because it, that's one of the biggest privileges yeah. of my life right. was going to that school and then coming to America to finish my studies. It's something really most girls don't get. Very true. But all of that all of that informs you because you've, you've got the background in politics, whether you like it or not. Your family, <laughs> you your family has has that in in your experience growing up. It's yeah. the conversation. It's yeah. the, not expectation necessarily, but at least the so much atmosphere. Yeah, so much conversation and dinner parties and all the diplomats. I mean, everybody came to our house. When, I mean, they tried to kill my dad in 96 or they threw a bomb on his face and the prime minister was at our house in my parents' like bedroom. And, you know, so, yeah, very intimately um in tune with the with the government, with politics, and also when we weren't in power, scary things, right. uh, you know. But also around some strong women. Not not, oh, o- yeah. not only your mother, but yeah. not only the prime minister at one point. But yeah. but you had some. So it, to me, it's not surprising that when you came to the United States and you had the chance after college to to work on something, yeah. that you chose to. I know. Take a job on Capitol Hill, <laughs> and start working on. Global health widely, but more particularly women's health. Yeah. Um, what drew you specifically to that? Or, or perhaps a better question is, what when you, when you had that opportunity presented to you, what, what did you say to yourself? Like, yeah, this is something I can invest that energy in. Yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. Right. Um, I just knew that the America had invaded Afghanistan, and you know, it was 2002. 
9-11 had just happened. You know, we were going to go into Afghanistan and get the Taliban out and save all the Afghan women. And for me, for a lot of Americans, that was the first time they had heard of the Taliban, right? Mm -hmm. But for me, it was like deja vu because I remember them from being in school in Bangladesh when when we were like 15, 16 and the Taliban first came into power. The stories were definitely the stories. It was so scary because we were like, oh, my God, this is happening like two countries over. Is it going to happen here? And it was crazy because these were women with like PhDs and doctors and teachers who were like overnight either, you know, imprisoned in their homes or, you know, trapped under that really scary blue burqa. So everyone was scared. And then that was kind of it. Like we never heard about them again until 2001. So I really wanted to work for Afghan women. I was like, this is my chance to save Afghan women. And what was um, the organization? Was it the Afghan Women and Girls Campaign? Is that right? Yeah, but it was for the Feminist Majority Foundation, which is, uh, you know, Ellie Smeal's organization. She's, you know, a big feminist icon, American feminist icon, kind of the mother of the ERA. And this campaign was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. It was kind of the first American women's rights organization working on this issue. And they had been working on it since before 2000, 2001. But it got a lot of momentum. It got a lot of momentum. And, um, you know, Elise Meal was a big mentor of mine. And her thing was always two-pronged. It was, you know, um, political action and grassroots scholarship education. But mm-hmm. she was always like, you want to change anything cultural, it, you have to start at a political level. And I really learned from her so much, but really how Capitol Hill works, the power of American policy, how accessible American democracy is. I mean, you cannot walk into like the Bangladesh parliament. I don't know what security is like after January 6th, but to be able to like a Bangladeshi citizen going and lobbying, you know, Senate Foreign Relations, Senate Dirksen, Mm -hmm. uh, was crazy to me. And so uh, it was amazing. And, And to see the complete flip side of US policymaking. Right. It was really It's fascinating to me that that you found that such a learning experience because you had grown up in a political household. You you had gone to to college and you had studied politics, among other things. Yeah. And suddenly you still find yourself learning about how the grassroots work with the overall campaign. Totally. But from like one of the world's poorest countries, even though we're a development star and doing so great and Mm -hmm. one of the most corrupt. Yeah. Still lots of problems um, to the world's. I, I never could ever imagine. Um, But it was also interesting because growing up in Bangladesh and going to the school that I did, I went to school with all those USA director's kids, the ambassador's daughter. I mean, Mm. oh my God, that whole upheaval was happening in 96. I moved into the American ambassador's house because we had to leave our home in Bangladesh. My dad went into hiding. I had two sisters in college, another sister. I think she was living in London. Anyway, but my, my, they were going to arrest my dad. And so we had to, our house wasn't safe. But my best friend was Melissa Merrill. <laughs> she was the ambassador's daughter. So we you had a place to crash. Yeah, we had a place. I had a place to crash. But we went to school together every morning in a bulletproof car. And one day the embassy had gotten uh, news that my dad's political party was going to bomb the uh ambassador's residence and the American ambassador it was so funny Mr. Merrill was like I just know this intelligence is not right because his daughter is staying at my house staying with us for the past month now at the time you're working on this on the hill this is not a fringe issue because this is kind of the issue you actually have the first lady of the United States Laura Bush saying the fight against terrorism is also a fight for the rights and dignity of women and and isolating 
Afghan women saying Afghan women are no longer imprisoned in yeah. their homes because of the United States intervention in yeah. Afghanistan. That that feels like progress. Yeah. Right. That that gives you energy to work on. Oh yeah, it was the, the issue causes. on Capitol Hill, and mm-hmm. so much money. Right. Forget military aid. So much money for uh, nonprofits on the ground. Oh, Afghan women's organizations, bringing Afghan women here. We had a scholarship program at the Feminist Majority where we take girls from refugee camps and send them to college here. Mm-hmm. Um, now, looking back, there were so many great things, but I was also very naive, mm. you know, very naive. I understand the importance so much of American foreign policy to national security and international security so much. But I also now know that a military occupation, you know, will never deliver Hmm. women's rights. You have a real balance there. And I'm wondering where (laughs) where you come out on this balance. On the one hand, you have the U.S. military intervention, which, of course, you know, you you see the end of that several months ago in a way that was heartbreaking. And you see the return of so many Women yeah. in particular, but so many people in Afghanistan return to this this condition that we thought that w- yeah. was gone. On the other hand, and, and as you're feeling sad about that and rightfully depressed about the human condition, you also reflect on it and say, for 20 years in Afghanistan, girls had the opportunity to go yeah. to school. There, yeah, there were yeah. still societal pressures in places, yeah. but a lot of very many, good things happened. Many did, yeah. and and people yeah. were able to get out. There was a message that was spread there, not only in Afghanistan but beyond, and millions of lives were changed for the good. Yeah, and those are two very strong, yeah, uh, opposite emotions. How do you think about it now after watching the withdrawal from Afghanistan? Are are you more focused on the latter, saying, "Oh no, this is a total screw up." Or are you more focused on, 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 you know what? A lot of lives were improved and many were saved. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I am kind of traumatized by the U.S. withdrawal. And I feel like I'm going to need years of deep therapy because it was the worst case scenario. I think it was worse than what we uh, all thought. But I don't think it's like either or. It's complicated because of Afghanistan itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I also come from Bangladesh. So, I mean, I grew up seeing America. I mean, America really introduced the concept of public health to Bangladesh, you know, safe motherhood initiatives, helped us slash our maternal mortality by, by 40%. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but the State Department, USAID I mean, are two separate things, but State Department has programs on governance, clean water, democracy. I mean, this is real stuff that, that most Americans don't know about, but those were the kids I was hanging out with or the program managers I was hanging out with and it know, helps, growing up. And it helps to put down the argument when people argue about foreign aid just yeah. being a waste of money, uh, throwing yeah, yeah. money to a foreign country. It's no, there are actually programs and initiatives. Yeah, when it that works, that it works funds. great. Afghanistan is complicated because there's a reason it's called the graveyard of empires. There really is. Mm-hmm. Russians, yeah. British. Yeah. And then I think the Amer- it was too much going on. And I think America lost its lost its uh lost its path, I almost want to say. You know, I mean the drugs and trafficking and the women. The women went from the top of the list to really like, who cares? At one point it was about survival. And I think probably um, for you more than most, the heartbreaking part is realizing that the withdrawal was due in large part to poll after poll saying the American people just didn't care about Afghanistan anymore. They wanted yeah, they just want to get they wanted home. troops out, even though there weren't that many troops in. Yeah. That th- they I wanted just, that yeah. chapter done. Yeah. And unfortunately, closing that chapter opened up a new chapter 
that looks a whole lot like the chapter you described from the mid-1990s when the Taliban first came to power. I I just, I mean, it's like going back to step one. But I also just feel like, I mean, just just those people running on the, running in the airport, uh, trying to catch on to that that Mm. U.S. plane. Like, I feel like we couldn't have even organized better to get like the translators, the people with their special visas. Like, you know, we have, I think about like 2,500. So I don't know, I think, talk about national security. That's going to come back and bite us in the butt. It has to, yep. in a really bad way. I don't know how, uh, but it, it can't be good. Yeah. Well, when you're on the Hill, you're not just focused on legislation affecting Afghan women and girls, even yeah. though that's the initiative you're mostly focused on. You are working on other major legislation yeah. about discrimination against women and the Violence Against Women Act. Yeah. Talk through a little bit of that and what you learned about the wider issues and, and how that led to some of the issues you've continued to follow for the decades since. Um, I've learned it's worlds away from marble hallways of the U.S. Congress and Capitol building and the beautiful paintings and murals uh, on the wall to what is the members sitting together having a serious conversation about the merits of this legislation. Yeah, that's not really how it works. No. And then what's happening on on the ground and how the people who decide these things. I mean, it really does come down to a lot of really old white men. Mm-hmm. really powerful, who have no idea, or maybe they don't care uh, about what that language means for X, Y, and Z. And also the complicated web, right? I mean, the lawmaker you're lobbying has to worry about his constituents, his this, this money. Then you have to work on the language. Then you have, I mean, to follow a bill through from the inception to getting the money appropriated to who's going to get this pie on the ground, all the American organizations, I think, I'm not going to remember this right, but I think there was about 10 or 15 nonprofits at the U.S., subcontracts too, and then it goes down kind of um, from there. It's really easy to get wrapped up in the policy part. I think I started working so hard, and especially on like global, global health legislation, international family planning funding. When you're on the Hill, everything just makes so much sense. <laughs> right? You're like, if I get this, then I get this, then we solve women's rights today. Um, but then I'd go back to Bangladesh and just feel like, oh my God, this is so complicated. And the politics of women's health is really real. Women's rights and women's health in America and other countries. And if you don't believe that, I mean, hello, just look at what happened when Obama tried to push Obamacare and everything was basically held up over what? Women's health. And are we going to cover penis pumps? Or are we going to cover birth control? Or is it going to be Viagra? Or is it going to be abortion? So these things, a lot of the arguments we have domestically are injected in U.S. foreign policy abroad. And most Americans don't even know, have don't have really have an idea what's going on in on in Washington and also how this policy, the policies made in America can override laws in, in another country. You're talking about like the Mexico City policy? Exactly. Like that's one of my best examples of it because it's it, it's uncon- it would be unconstitutional. It's, mm-hmm. It would be illegal in America when you say to someone you can't talk about something or you're going to lose your funding, right? Mm-hmm. That's why we call it the global gag rule. Um, but that is a great example of contentious, toxic, dom- domestic abortion politics mm-hmm. uh, being shipped abroad. So in, in the time you were on the Hill, because we'll, we'll get to some of your writings after you you left that environment. But during your time on the Hill, were you more were you more positive because you saw what could be done and mm-hmm. you saw that yes, there were members and staff who who did want to do these things for the right reasons yeah. and use their political capital to get it done? Or did you find yourself leaving kind of shaking your head because of what you just said, which is 
the problems are so big and, yeah. and people are quibbling over these these things that are important to them, but literally millions of lives are at stake and, and they're arguing over something that matters to a few of their most powerful constituents. No, you know, well, there's been like a 22 year gap, right? I was like 21, mm -hmm. 22 when I started working on the Hill and now I'm gonna be 42 next month. So of course I have grown up and I, I have matured, but you know, I criticize America a lot just because I, it's a part of my job. <laughs> But I actually am a really big patriot, and I think what I saw on the Hill was the, the best of America. The opposition was really scary. The, the pro-life lobby is real. Yep. <laughs> They're scary. Um, there are extremists that are white, too. They're all not just in Afghanistan. There's some here, too. So, you know, when I worked at the Feminist Majority, there was a man one time ha hiding out, waiting to kill Ellie Smeal in the bathroom. He had, like, a gun. So we had to have, like, we had, like, serious security just in that building. So I know, like, being a feminist and, you know, outspoken women's rights advocate anywhere is is dangerous. I mean, this is Ellie Smeal living here in, like, Washington. And, my God. So, um no, I, I felt like it was the best of America mm -hmm. and Americans because, yeah, it matters to tying it all back to their security. But they also don't have to be like this. I mean, the programs are really, really good. The good, good Americans doing really good work. Of course, that keeps America standing in the world, right? You're not going to be a superpower. You can't. You can either be like China. <laughs> You can be, or the nice, the nice superpower, right? The soft power is is equally important, mm -hmm. equally important. So, um, I just really liked it because when it works, it's so good. Um, but it's also the politics of it, right? I mean, I, I was under, I worked under Bush. It was mm -hmm. a Bush administration, so we right. saw a lot of really, you know, anti-choice, abstinence, all that stuff come in. Uh, but then we had amazing senators at that time, like Senator Biden, you mm -hmm. know, huge champion. I think he headed uh, the Foreign Relations Committee. Right. And, you know, huge, huge uh, champion, not only of the Violence Against Women's Act in America, but the International Violence Against Women's Act. I mean, he, used to, he was very, very close with Elise Smeal, so we worked with him uh, very closely. So... The good, not the good, it's like, you know, not saying the good and the bad, but yeah, it was great. Great to see champions like that in, in American government. How cool. But but you left that and you decided. <laughs> I did. You decided you had enough of the No, I needed to get my making. master's. Yeah. I knew I needed to get a master's in gender and development and it wasn't gonna happen in the States because at that time nobody was offering it. It was LSC in London and then the University of Sussex where I went on to. So I mm. knew that was gonna have to happen and I wanted to take a year off. To my credit, I graduated from college and went two weeks later I, I started working and then I worked mm -hmm. for a whole year. I didn't even like take a vacation. So mm -hmm. I made a deal with my parents that I wanted to go to Italy for three months and learn Italian and then I was gonna get into a great master's program in London. And I did, except I moved to Italy for a year. <laughs> I was gonna say three months. <laughs> Three you can't really learn like Italian. 10, Twelve. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, yeah. eventually, you find your way with with the master's degree experience yeah. that that opened it up. You find yourself focusing a lot on women's health yeah. uh, issues, global health issues, but women's health in particular. And there's some really interesting studies that you've highlighted, and I want to give some of these statistics to give a sense of what you're starting to explore, you're starting to realize, and the fact that you need to be speaking and writing on this. So. The Physician's Health Study from 1982, which analyzed the effect of daily aspirin on heart disease. This is, a, this is a wonderful study. It's an important issue because heart disease for men and women, horrible killer. Yeah. 
uh, they tested two, no, they tested 22,071 people. That's great. All of them were men. No women, yeah. No one was, no, no woman was tested. A 1986 pilot study from New York City's Rockefeller University was exploring how obesity impacts breast and uterine cancer. That's my favorite study. That's, that's a great study. We need to understand these All things. All men. They don't have uteruses, though. Wait a minute. You're, they were studying uterine cancer effects in, in men. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm exactly. Not, I'm not a trained medical <laughs> professional, but Dawn something's uterus. weird there. Yeah. Something's yeah. weird there. I mean, you know, it, my editor actually, it's so funny because that is cited to a Chicago Tribune article in 1986, but my editor was like, this cannot be real. Like, she made me fact check it. She, she, so many of these studies that are facts, yeah. <laughs> people were like, no, this is not real. Double, triple check. Well, I think there's, there's something helping you here. The National Institutes of Health. Yes. Not until 2014 did the NIH even acknowledge yeah. the issue of male bias in preclinical trials, despite evidence like, yeah. like that. And then only two years later did they mandate that studies had to include women to be granted research money. Yeah. That's, that's 2016. We're not talking about yeah. generations ago. Exactly. So that's what you're discovering. That's what you're yes. getting into after your master's and you're starting to write and, and speak out about a lot of issues. How did that move you to focus on doing intense research for and really focusing on issues of maternal health and bias, both domestically and internationally? against women and especially against women of color when it comes to medical treatment. Yeah. Well, there was a big gap between that. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of my research started happening when I started writing the book. Huh. And just like I didn't, you know, people are so shocked at the amount of data and research in this book. I don't know why they're shocked about it. I don't know if some people thought that I'm going on for 300 pages about this horrible thing that happened to me. No, you bring the goods. In they, the, in the yeah. hospital. Thank you for saying that because I really do. But anyhow, somebody was telling me that they're so shocked by that. And I was like, I didn't plan it to be uh, personal narrative research, personal narrative research. But when I was writing the book, it was very natural. A lot of the questions I ask in the book I had myself. Like, why is this happening? Why didn't anyone say, hey, we're not testing on women? Mm -hmm. Wasn't anyone noticing that men didn't have uteruses? Um, so, and then that led to research and questions because this is all out there. You know, I didn't make this information up. Even though I feel like sometimes people, when they don't believe, they're like, really? Really, where'd you get this? Right. I'm like, from the National Institute of Health. Yeah, it's real. Website, it's all there, guys. Mm. Uh, they're not denying any of this. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like a scandal I've... But actually, it is a scandal I've uncovered because a lot of people don't know. I was shocked about this. I was shocked. Mm -hmm. I was shocked. How can this happen um, in America? We know medicine and science is really male-dominated, but my God, I mean, if we can't get it straight for American women, we are so screwed. And that's Pardon all... my French. That's all statistics. That's all abstract for most people. Yeah. Um, it became vividly personal for you. Yeah. Um, you're pregnant. And you may know some of these statistics at the time. Some you discovered later, but you yeah. were aware of some of it. You were certainly, at a minimum, aware of the relative difference of uh, the average woman's experience in healthcare in Bangladesh yeah. and the average woman's experience in America. Yeah. And you were very glad to be delivering yeah. in the United States of America. Yeah. Until... Why don't, you, why don't you talk through a little bit of your own personal experience and, and then we'll kind of broaden that out to some of the issues that you're, you're now currently highlighting about the problems with uh, the way that medicine uh, treats women. Yeah. Well, um, 
I really hate my story. Even though in the book I keep talking about how women have to come forward with their story and it's so important and that's where our power is, I really hate my story because I was set up for such a better one. In, in my birth story. <laughs> my birth story, not not other things. I just was so ready for that to be such an empowering mm -hmm. experience. I'm such a big feminist. Uh, I was one of the best hospitals in the country. And... Uh, I had no idea. I, I had no idea that it was possible to die in childbirth in America. I didn't think it happened. And I didn't think it was happening to me while it was happening to me. I kept telling myself, I mm -hmm. remember this, even when it was like, I mean, I, I really, I could have died. It, I'm still processing that trauma. It's so fun. Sometimes when I say it out loud, I'm like, really? Really? Did that really happen? Uh, but yes, it did. But I kept telling myself over and over again that I was in America and I was going to be fine. I was like, I'm in America, I'm in Washington, D.C., I'm not going to die in childbirth in America, um, even though I was dying in childbirth in America. Um, but of course, all of this, it took me, I mean, my daughter is 10 now, really a decade, not only to understand what happened, but to understand why it happens in America, right? Why? It's not that we don't have the expertise or the tools or but women have been giving birth since the dawn of time. Like we know how to save women's lives and intervene. Another thing I really want to say is that the book doesn't only talk about maternal health. It's once I delved into this, I discovered it's chronic pain, endometriosis, heart disease. It's kind of all over the place. But why do I always focus on maternal mortality? It's not because of what happened to me, but because the World Health Organization <laughs> looks at maternal mortality numbers not only as an indicator of how many women are dying in childbirth, but also as an indicator of women's overall position in society mm -hmm. and how well your healthcare systems are functioning. And we know they're not functioning well in America. And the maternal mortality statistics reflect that because we have the expertise, we know how to intervene. Why are so many women dying? Why is that number rising? Why do we have the highest maternal mortality numbers amongst rich nations? It 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 is not wrong to say that it might be safe to give birth in Bangladesh than to give birth in America, which is the irony of my life. And people get really offended by this. And I have to really give a disclaimer because I'm not insulting the American medical, the, the system. The system's actually working the way it's supposed to be working, which is gains, the business of giving birth, mm -hmm. capitalism, white lives over everybody else. It's actually functioning the way it's supposed to, but America is changing, right? America's face is changing. America's colors are changing, and mm -hmm. I think that's a big problem. And it seems like one of the the issues that you've highlighted that, that leads to a situation where uh, maternal death rates are so relatively high in the United States yeah. versus our expectations is this systemic belief in the medical establishment yeah. that women's pain I don't want to say doesn't matter, yeah. but women's pain doesn't exist in many yeah. cases. That there's the strong data you found yeah. that, in fact, doctors don't believe women when they complain about pain and they don't prescribe the right treatments for yeah. pain, which can lead to more yeah. serious conditions, complications, yeah. and, and other things like it's that. It's not just doctors, though. I feel like women, nobody believes women about our pain. There's a great quote in there by Gabrielle Jackson, who wrote Pain and Prejudice, mm -hmm. um, because she lived with endometriosis for so long, mm -hmm. uh, that women's pain is at, at once expected and denied. It's so true. People expect us to have this really high threshold for pain, which I guess we do, because we have to. Yeah. And then we're also not believed about it. Um, and I feel like a lot of the problems start right there. When women start voicing, I'm not okay, or I think, and then it's always, 
X, Y, and Z. And now the data backs us. You know, it, the data shows that men men's pain is taken more seriously, treated more uh, seriously, and that women even wait longer in in uh, the hospital waiting rooms to be seen over their pain. The hard so. part is is why is that? Yeah, is some of it an outgrowth of this machismo culture that? You know, men take pain, you know, they, they, they're playing football <laughs> and they keep playing unless the coach forces them to come off the field. So therefore, if they complain about pain, it must be severe. Yeah. Or how, or <laughs> yes. how. Uh, Toxic masculinity right there. Yes. That, or, and maybe it's an and or, mm -hmm. or is it the minimization of women's own experiences. It's a combination. You know, what was so interesting about the title, The Pain Gap, is that yes, there's a pain gap. There's also a gender gap. <laughs> there's also a credibility gap. And then there's a knowledge gap. There's very little known about women's um, health. And even now the research, even now clinical trials, it happened last year while I was writing the book with the COVID vaccine. I couldn't believe it. Women were completely left out of the trials. Pregnant women were completely left out of the trials. Now they're like, oh, the vaccine's safe for pregnant women because they basically tested in an un women in an uncontrolled environment. Right. And what was the motivation for doing that? Because it doesn't come from an evil place. No, it and it's always about the fetus. And in America, we know we're very, very worried about this fetus. Let's we're, protect those who can't We're more worried about themselves. the fetus than the real woman, mm -hmm. living, breathing, <laughs> grown adult woman. We are. But also, uh, statistically, aside from the smallpox vaccines, vaccines have not caused so much, um, uh, have not been so harmful to mm -hmm. the fetus. I think it was the smallpox vaccine. I write about this in the book. was the only vaccine that caused abnormalities uh, in the fetus. But um, the other thing is, without getting too scientific, it is in the book that if there's not a live virus in the vaccine, you don't, ha and, and the COVID vaccine didn't have it. Um, but I thought it was crazy that after we saw, you know, American childcare, American healthcare, mm -hmm. so many systems that women count on, yeah. Um, disappear, childcare mainly, schools uh, disappear and the pandemic really land on women's backs. We still excluded them from the most anticipated vaccine of our freaking lifetimes. Um, but aside from the knowledge gap, going, I want to go back to the credibility gap because mm -hmm. this is fascinating. Yeah. It's so fascinating to me. Women are really not believed. We have no credibility. We're not believed about our bodies, period. If we've been raped, somebody grabbed our ass, if we were harassed, if we're in pain, if we think something's wrong, no, it's interesting you put that in the passive voice. We are not believed. You're not saying that men don't believe women. You're saying men and women yes. don't believe women. Oh, women too. Can I tell you? Oh, my goodness. I mean, God bless, okay? I mean, women have a lot of, I mean, we are also, we've been fed a lot of this patriarchy too. Sometimes women hold down each other harder. And it's, by the way, this is global. I had a woman come to my house I think two or three days after my book was released, who told me that I went to the hospital to die. And, uh, you know, why didn't I do X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, oh my goodness, like this is a traumatic story for me and I, an experience. And, but this whole thing about it's your fault or what did you do? Mm -hmm. It's, you get those questions if you've been raped and you come forward too. What did you do to put yourself in this situation? So, you know, rape culture is real and that's, you know, normalizing men's sexual violence, but blaming women for everything. So that credibility yeah. issue, that, credibility that, that seems like it's bigger than just individual choices. Oh yeah, this goes back history, history right. to the Greeks. And, and we know better now because of yeah. the statistics. You know, and you've related yeah. in your writing that 
female biology simply hasn't been studied as much as male biology. Yeah. That tests haven't been done to show that, for example, Ambien has a different yes. effect on women than Slower men that can to be digest. lethal. Yes. Uh, we, kn- <laughs> we know that now, and yet this, this credibility issue still is there. Yeah. Is that a matter of training? Is this being reinforced in medical schools and in nursing colleges? Yes, totally, totally. And you know what? That's a really big community I want to target with my book because I know that women are going to read this book um, because every woman has a story. Every woman has a story. Mm -hmm. And I really want to listen to all of them. I'm kind of obsessed with listening to all of them because the really interesting pattern is that Almost all women are told that it's either all in their heads or they're imagining it, and almost all women were not imagining it. It always ends up being like cancer or a tumor or endometriosis. I mean, Padma Lakshmi's story is, is in there. But I also do feel like it, it, it is. It's, a, it's time for a cultural shift. And I feel like what's so great about COVID, there are good things about COVID, guys, is that it has just exposed it all. America's racial lines in our healthcare, undeniable. Yep. Women are still dying. More women died last year. <laughs> in childbirth, obviously, our healthcare system kind of collapsed. But these things, um, um, the, these things are happening, and we have a chance to change it. We don't have to go back, right? I mean, COVID is the pandemic has shown us a lot of things that we don't have to go back to that weren't working. And I think healthcare is is really one of them. I mean, we can talk about that that point when I went back to Bangladesh in February of 2021. But people were shocked. Wait, I explain mean, to me that you. You went back to Bang. This is February of 2021. Yeah. We're still in COVID. Yes. And that may not have been the peak, but it probably it was wasn't really too scary. far from it. Yeah. Um, you went back for family Yeah, reasons. I had to go back. I hadn't seen my parents in 13 months. And my dad was really sick. I actually wanted to go back and bring him back with me. Mm-hmm. During that time, COVID in America was still really bad, but South Asia was before India exploded. Right. South Asia was having this moment of, oh, we handled it great because we know about pandemics. But it was getting there. It wasn't long after the fact, after oh, you were there it was that like it took off. two or three weeks. And you know, when I went there, everyone made so much fun of me because I was like shield, gloves, masks, mm-hmm. All of it. Like my skin was peeling by the time I left talking because I was the the antibacterial there is yep. called hexagon. And I think it's just I don't know. It's maybe acid, like right? acid. It just rips but up I your didn't skin. care. I was about to drink it at the end. And everybody got COVID after I left. My dad mm-hmm. got it, my mom got it, my niece got it. So you're saying you were the vector, you took it no, to Bangladesh. That's what my that's my what mother-in-law was like, I hope you didn't infect anyone. I was like, no, I don't have COVID. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have been allowed but in. But you, you did, when you were in Bangladesh, you had the opportunity to visit and, and meet with rural women, female yeah. politicians, and talk about some of these issues in a pandemic. So it's the yeah. perfect opportunity, a systemic shock to talk about the core issues of the very system itself. Yeah, but you know what? Um, a lot of people were shocked at, I mean, I'm going to go back to what I, what those women in my father's constituency wanted to talk to me you know, about mm-hmm. women's health in the book, but people were like, what the heck is happening in America? No one had seen. The problems that maybe you and I know just from living here, the, the world really didn't know, you know, how our insurance works, how the emergency room works. Dude, if you don't have insurance, yes, they would rather see you die than have you come in and give you treatment, even though they have the -hmm. treatment right there. So Mm -hmm. I think the world was really shocked to see that and to see that, you know, white people weren't getting hit as hard as black people. Black people weren't being believed when they're all the things that are happening in the maternal health care system obviously are indicative of larger issues across across the health care, across American health care. It was really sad. It was really sad. I really felt like my my worlds were reversed. And then I got really angry at America 
Because I was like, it doesn't have to be like this. We're so freaking rich. Why is Bangladesh like so organized about their vaccine? Nobody debated vaccines or masks. I know Mm -hmm. we couldn't afford to, but nobody did. Plus, we had seen pandemics before. The army was so organized about all our vaccine sites, even though it was AstraZeneca. I was really angry. I was like, why is America falling apart? God, Trump sucks. I blamed everything on him. Um, It speaks to a a larger issue, though, because you have this this abstract reality of the immense progress in places like Bangladesh, um, across the continent of Africa in the past 50 years. You look at a, a site like Our World in Data, which does comparative levels of you know, maternal death rates or literacy rates, almost any measure of human progress you find, it is absolutely shocking within our lifetimes, the progress that has been made, the the lifting out of abject poverty in so many parts of the world. Things are so much better in so many areas. Now, we shouldn't use that as an excuse to say, okay, we got these things solved because they're getting better. No, it's it's an impetus to do even better, to make more progress. But you see that and you go back to Bangladesh. You haven't been there in a while. Now you're focused on these issues in a new way, and you're recognizing, wow, yeah. you're doing you're doing this shit really well. Yeah. And then you see the United States, which started at a so much higher point. Yeah. And maybe made minimal progress, but in some ways was backsliding. Yeah. And that has to be a real shock for you, especially as it intersects with the issues of uh, yeah. race and gender. It really made me realize too how much I love America. Like mm-hmm. it's not you know naive. I just. Uh, you know, the whatever you say, even the, okay, why does America do the soft power U.S. foreign policy stuff for women's health and governments and clean water? Like, come on, what are they really trying to get at? Uh, but a lot of good work does happen. I mean, mm-hmm. PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. Yeah. Wow, I remember that. George Bush, lots of problems, abstinence only. Still the largest U.S. health legislation ever. It was like a three, four billion dollar AIDS package. Uh, America doesn't have to do that. Um, so... I really believe in the generosity and the good of, of American American people. I understand people are exhausted, especially post-pandemic. I understand right. people just want to like cut off and go. But then you have to decide, right? You can't be this superpower, the nice superpower, you know, and have policies like China. <laughs> right. Let's talk about what's happening with the Uyghurs. So, you know, the good cop, bad cop thing does does exist. But, you know, uh, when I went back on that trip, some women in my dad's constituency were like, you know, congrats on your book. That's so great. How the heck does that affect mm-hmm. women's health in Bangladesh? And it really, really stopped me that woman said that to me. Uh, but then I told her, I said, because if we don't get it right in the States, um, yeah. the most educated, you know, powerful women, okay? I mean, we don't have it all right in the States, but we are super powerful. So if we don't get it right, I, I don't, I, I know women's health around the world will suffer. But we also have to recognize that it is a problem. And I want to go back to something yeah. you said earlier. You said, in relating your personal experience. You didn't think it was possible to die in childbirth in the US, and yet you almost did, and many women do, especially women Women of color. color, Um, But people don't know that. I think most people in the United States don't, simply don't realize that. And I'm wondering what it will take. Will it take a a prominent celebrity, a, 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 a woman of color who is a superstar, to die in childbirth for people to wake up because statistics aren't doing it. Yeah. Um, frankly, you out here talking about it not hasn't changed it, yeah. the entire culture of the United States. Yeah. I know that's your goal in the next few weeks, but that would be 
that would be a high Can I tell you, I'm feeling to it too. I'm like, the other day I was feeling really depressed. I'm like, why hasn't the yeah. book changed everybody? Why don't people care? <laughs> yeah. But can I tell you why? And that's when race comes in. Okay. So it took me a really long time to figure this out because once I had stumbled upon America's maternal health crisis, um, I, I really didn't understand why everybody wasn't talking about it. And it, we don't need another celebrity death. I mean, I work so closely with Chrissy Turlington and her organization, Every Mother Counts. She's out there talking about it every day. She's made big strides, but that's not enough. Uh, Serena Williams almost died. That wasn't enough. Beyonce almost died. Because when you look at the numbers, so I had left this world for a little bit, but when I came back to the maternal health advocacy world, a large part because of Christy. You know, she made she she made me moderate her panel at South by Southwest, mm -hmm. giving birth in America, which really just she really kind of pulled me back. She she takes credit for this too. Um, but we went and did another conference in North Carolina, North Carolina, New Orleans together in mm -hmm. Louisiana, and that's where I got my answer to why isn't everyone freaking out about America's maternal health crisis and the scandal because it's black women. Mm -hmm. It's actually a black maternal health crisis. Um, for a really long time pre-pandemic, people thought this was over really racist reasons and explanations and stereotypes such as, oh, they're welfare queens or black people are less uh, educated. But now we know it's racism and not race. And the studies show that a black wo college educated woman in America is 5.2 times higher, like more likely to die in childbirth than her white counterpart with a high school degree. Wait, let me make sure I got that right. College degree. So yeah. so black women with college degrees, five Are times more likely to die likely than to white die. women with a high school degree. Yeah. Okay, so that would seem to get the education. The and education some of the, thing, it was huge. Right. Everyone's always like, it's because they're not educated. No, it's, it, it's, it actually makes it more dangerous for you. And you can't ignore, the, you know, it happens to me all the time. People are like, well, racism, it can't be racism. But it is, you can't, you can't uh, ignore that. And when you hear, you have the statistics, but you have to hear people's stories. You have, this is where women's stories come in because I have one story in there where a woman she had a she had two master's degrees and a PhD in in chemistry something crazy and when she was having her C-section they were slicing her open they didn't give her any anesthesia and she was telling the doctor that she could feel this okay mm -hmm. and then he was like it's not that bad and she was like I can feel you cutting me open and then she just heard this nurse scream stop and she passed out and she woke up there was like blood everywhere. Oh. She wasn't sure if her um, baby had survived or not. I mean, it's just crazy. I so part of this then is to to motivate women to speak up, to to join together, to speak louder. Yeah. Part of it has to also be, uh, frankly, I got tired of hearing you say, women need to read this book. Yeah. Because uh, frankly, men need to read this book yeah. because when you have the majority of healthcare systems. Uh, the majority of hospitals and the majority of doctors being men, you're, you're, a loud chorus is not going to change it because, yeah. like no, you said, right. some of it's inherent in the training. Some of it's inherent in the, the systems that train yeah. our medical system personnel. Um, but I'm trying to imagine what that looks like. I mean, is it an implicit bias course that is in medical school? Because I just don't feel like that's going to do it. Um, it. I don't know. It could. A lot of it is about letting women know that also we have choices. I mean, I did this thing with this working group for Health and Human Services the other day from the Biden administration, and they really wanted me to give them, like, 
here, intervene here at 345 when this is happening, like really specific interventions. And I was like, women don't know that they have choices. I, 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 so they're actually, so, so you've corrected me there. I mean, it sounds like there actually is a purpose there for the, uh, for women to speak up because they don't know they can. Yes. They don't know that they can. They don't know that they are allowed to disagree with their doctor or change providers. Uh, they don't know that they can have an advocate in there. They don't know that, it, you know, it's not only hospital births are bust. But I love what you said about men because you're so right. And I feel like we kind of talked about this after you called me the first time and you wanted to give my book to, to somebody amazing. Uh, but it's so important um, what you said because not only are men most of the time, you know, our partners, we can't move forward in this conversation or this revolution without them. I, I, I know, and especially doing the work that I do, that we educate women on women's rights and what's wrong a lot. <laughs> Sometimes we're like, we know. Even if you can't articulate it, the poorest woman knows what the problem is to um, a woman in a, in a much more different circumstance. But the reason that men are so important is because um, they're oftentimes our partners and our witnesses. Like, you know, my husband was my witness. And I get so emotional talking about it because I didn't realize um, at the time. But the more I talk about this book and with the book out there, I'm just so grateful he was there. And in the writing of this book, because uh, you doubt your own memory, too. And he was the one who came into the operating room and saw me, you know, completely shaking and shivering on the table. And so there oftentimes are witnesses. But also I feel there are I mean, it's it's only 50 percent of the population if we're only talking to one group. And can I tell you, yeah. men agree. I feel like the majority of men are not disagreeing. No, I think it's, they're not like, hey, women should shut up and die. <laughs> no, I think it's a wake up call in many ways because yeah. we only live our own experiences. Yes, we share stories and hopefully there's, there's a level of empathy in the world, but you only live your own experience. Yeah. And to to hear some of these things is uh, it, it's like shining a light into yes. a dark room. And I really believe that. And it's a lot like white privilege, like it is with race. It's almost like male privilege with gender and sex, because once that light bulb happens, and, and it's okay. I mean, people get so uh, sensitive about um, about examining their privilege. But, you know, people throw at me, you know, there's mean people online and Twitter like, oh, yeah, Nisha Hussain, her, whatever, her parents steal all the money from the Bangladesh government and send their kids abroad to harp on about human rights. And look what's happening in Bangladesh. So I'm like, yes, I am a highly educated, privileged Bangladeshi girl. No, I don't think every other girl in Bangladesh is, is like that. But what what can so what <laughs> what can i do now that that i'm here and once you kind of examine that and by the way it all ties back to national security i don't think america is doing good governance programs in bangladesh and pakistan for i don't know brownie points here it all comes back to securing well, america it, it, it is in america's national security to have women empowered and have democratic countries you know as much as we can and i think there can be two explanations for that. One is the reason that the United States, according to the State Department, is committed to advancing gender <laughs> equality. There can be two reasons for that. One is that it's inherently the right thing to do. Yeah. In the United States of America, for all of its flaws in executing foreign policy, uh, it's amazing when you look at the origins of so many of those specific policies, there actually is an ethic behind it, that there's the desire to yes. do good for the world. So yes. that's true. Yes. It's also true that doing that helps national security yeah. because studies have found quite easily that a lot of what I'll call pre-modern attitudes towards women 
uh, a lot of abusive cultures. Yeah. That is highly correlated with violent instability in a country, yeah. which, given the United States global commitments, leads to American interventions, leads to uh, issues that get in the way of everything from natural resources. So, yeah. yes, you have the ethical argument. You also have a very hardcore realist argument that yeah. helping women's security helps national security. Yeah. And it's also like it's not just women's health. You know, it's your country's health. It's your society's health, your, your, or your national health. And then you look at countries, I mean, and, you know, America doesn't always play it so nice and fair, right? I mean, we can look at some of our closest friends and allies like Saudi Arabia, like Pakistan, you know, look what we just did in Afghanistan. I don't know what that's going to do for our women, human rights development credibility. <laughs> um, that's why I say I think I was so naive uh, in my 20s to think that military in intervention was going to deliver women's rights to Afghanistan uh, wrapped in the American, draped in the American flag. But also... Um, when you have a superpower in your country, right, there's, a, there's opportunity to do a lot of work because what, what else is there along with the superpower occupation? Uh, media, right? International community has to kind That's of right. care. I mean, even though, yes, of course, everyone was exhausted of Afghanistan. Afghans were exhausted <laughs> of Americans. Um, but my God, I mean, well, let's, leaving the way that we did. Let's leave that part on a positive point, which is there are so many case studies, uh, both institutionally and individually, from that period in Afghanistan of things that went right. Yes. And if we can use that to build better programs yes. across the world in the future, we can still make a lot of good of what ended in a negative oh, way. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Let me, uh, let me introduce you to something here. Oh, my God. Is it a lizard? It. No, this oh. is not a lizard. Uh, although there may be a lizard in here. No, I don't know what Shane scary. did with the chatterbox uh, when oh. I left the studio. <laughs> But this, um, from our previous episodes, you may have heard, this is our chatterbox, where oh. we open up our chatterbox, and within the chatterbox are some random questions that we ask each guest to, to answer. Oh. So we'll reach into the chatterbox here, and we'll pick a random question. Wait, you get to pick it? You want to pick it? No, I don't care okay. either way. Um, but you're across the room from me, <laughs> well, yeah, and that's true. No, you I'd have to long-arm it. it, and I probably would destroy part of the Goat Rodeo you studio. You choose. Uh, so I will just pick a random question here. Um, Interesting. I believe this is the same question that uh, Adam Kinzinger randomly picked. So you are now in the same category. It's, a, it's a set of two oh. so far on the Chatter podcast of you and Representative Adam Kinzinger. If you could give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be? Mm, oh, God, I have so much advice. Mm, don't talk too much about a project before it's done. Ooh, it sounds Don't like you've been burned. Totally. How so? I feel like um, I have learned this the hard way. Not everybody is a well-wisher, and there are a lot of haters. Don't talk about your big ideas. People's outside energy really can uh, harm it. That's an interesting angle. As soon as you said that, my thought was you were going to say, <laughs> don't talk about your idea because someone else is going to steal it. Oh, but no. you said, no, it's because people are going to try to tear you down. Yeah, yeah. What a, really. what a horrible dynamic. It really is. And you know what? My husband is an entrepreneur, and he's um, much more uh, quiet than I am. <laughs> he's did, a super 
super quiet and very private person, which I know is shocking. But this is a really great piece of advice I learned from him because he never uh, does it. I'll be like, oh, I'm thinking about this book and da-da-da. And some hater will be like, that sounds dumb. Or it's never going to happen. And it really affects me. But there will be a real downside if the lesson from that is don't talk about big ideas because then you don't get the benefits of you know the the, the synergies of others experiences oh, to no, make no, the no. idea better be, maybe i should rephrase it mm-hmm. be selective yeah. when i lost everything at the start of the pandemic after trying yeah. for 40 years to get a book deal um without that kind of oh my goodness support friendship conversation planning yeah. uh i don't think i would have gotten another agent and restarted so yeah no be selective with who you share your dreams and projects with. Because, Sounds like good yeah. advice. Amusha, yeah. thank you for sharing this with us and thanks, thanks for coming so on Chatter. Much. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.